All right, before us is a marvelous passage of Scripture. It's Reformation Sunday. You can see the image there of Luther on the cover of your worship folder. So how can we not preach on justification by faith? Uh, this, is a, this is a great morning. I enjoy, enjoy the subject. And uh, let me set this up by way of, a, of an illustration. Uh, years ago, a woman came to me who had had a near-death experience. Uh, Near-death experiences uh, get you thinking. And we had met in the community, we, they believe it was through our school, and uh, so she came in to meet with me, and she had a yellow pad with all kinds of questions. <laughs> she wanted to go on a journey to explore the religions of the world, she was on a quest for truth. That's great. So she wanted to find out about Christianity. She had indicated she was going to go and explore Buddhism and other. She was on, but Christianity in God's providence was going to be the first stop. And my office was the first stop. Is God up, uh, doing something here? I think so. So, so she says, well, tell me about Christianity. I said, well, well, why don't we read something together in the Bible? So we read Exodus 20. Uh, we started with the Ten Commandments. I said, uh, let's start there. This is where Christianity starts. That's what I said. And she said to me, well, okay. Um, I said, what, how, how are you doing with these? How are you doing with these? And she said, well, isn't it, isn't it really a process? And so then I said, well, okay, what happens when you're do all done processing? I'll give it to you, all right? We'll go your way. Let's process this. Now, when you're all done processing, how are you doing? Why did I do that? Because God's law has a remarkably important function, and that is... It's to help the sinner find themselves as a sinner because our power of self-deception is quite remarkable. The author of, uh, of a novel called Hearts, Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad, he said that no one, no man knows how powerful their, their own ability to deceive themselves really is. He called it the art of of dodging self-perception. So we had a lovely conversation. I, got, I, I Sometimes when I tell stories, I don't tell people the, like, the end result of it. So Marianne will come, did you realize that, that you didn't tell them what? Oh, okay. So wonderful news. She processed well. And she found out why Jesus came. And she learned that in Christ alone would be her hope for eternal life, she trusted Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful, some of you. Years ago, some of you may know who I'm referring to. This is many, many years ago. So it's a beautiful story. With that, let's pray. Father, it is my privilege to uh, speak on behalf of you. Father, it is not my eloquence. It is not my uh, cleverness. It is not my rhetorical skills. 
that can do a single bit of good for anybody. So help me to be out, get out of the way. Help me to believe, even while I'm speaking, that you are using these words. Help these words to leap off the page in Scripture. Give, give my friends today hope. Give them clarity. Give them wonderful, wonderful news about Jesus. And help us, Father, to believe what you say about us and believe everything that you've said in the promises of Jesus toward us. Father, if I'm vague and unclear, Father, help that to not become distracting. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay. All right, so Romans 10. It's, uh, hopefully you have a Bible nearby uh, that you can follow along. I am going to just expound the Scriptures um, and do my best to present to you what is being said here in this passage. And I want you to know of the nearness of God for you. I want you to know how much God loves you, how much he has provided for you in Jesus, and how fully and secure you are in Christ. This is a very dense passage. It is a, at times, difficult passage, but it's a passage that talks about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification was a key doctrine in the Reformation of 500 years ago. It was like light shining into the dungeon. It, it, uh, it was remarkable. The news is that I am not in process in getting my act together, cooperating with the grace of God, listening to my church and its prescriptions for me. And then, strangely enough, one of the popes actually declared this to be, you know, a, they called this a papal bull, B-U-L-L, papal bull. And uh, <clears throat> there were a lot of, there's a lot of bull in this, uh, in this particular uh, approach to Scripture, which is that the, the what the, what the leader of the church says is, is equal to the, the, the authority of Scripture. And the church was actually told in the 1300s that if they were cooperative with the, uh, they told the church people that if they were cooperative with the, the process of penance, which is that you are uh, demonstrating your contrition for sin, if you cooperate with the, how the church dispenses its lessons for you, you can actually, listen to this, you can actually, because of your great need, uh, it's not just Jesus you turn to, it is the other saints you turn to, Mary and other great saints, and you can tap in to their extra merit for you. Do you see how good they were? Do you see how they cooperated with, the, the, with God's grace? And so Luther was raised with this. And the idea that a person by sheer faith alone in what Jesus has done was not at all taught to him. And so Luther, in great, with great sincerity, wanted to do what his church told him to do, and he was led into despair because he took the holiness of God seriously. He took sin seriously. 
And these are the kinds of words that leapt out of Scripture into his heart. And so here we, here we go with the introduction to our text, which our text really starts in verse 5. But uh, let, let's get this introduction, verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. This is Paul's contemporaries. These are fellow Jews. My heart for them is that they may be saved. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, verse 5 connects with verse 4. It's very important. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. I want you to, I'm going to read that again together and I see if you can catch this. For Christ is the end of the law, verse 4, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Put those two thoughts together. To the Jew, they would have been very impressed with law-keeping. They would have been uh, trying to keep the law in their zeal. And Paul is presenting to them, well, of course, keeping the law is central to what God prescribed in the covenant with Moses. Certainly, it was central to survival in the land. Heed the, the commands and the, the detailed instructions and heed those commands. And, and if you heed these commands, you, you will be righteous. In that same thought, verse 5 connects now. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So this is written to attract the Jewish thinker or recipient of this. You mean there's righteousness based on the law through Jesus. And that's his point. There is righteousness based on the law, not based on what you do, but upon Jesus. So verse 4 and verse 5, by the way, some of your Bibles have a little subheading that connects between uh, verse 4 and verse 5. That is not helpful. You've got to watch that. That's Zondervan. Or that's Erdman's or whatever company made your Bible. They threw that in there. And sometimes they are helpful. But this in particular case, they're not. So there is righteousness based on the law. By the way, we all need that. God doesn't just suggest ideas. You know that. They're called Ten Commandments. It's not just a discussion. Well, what, what, would you like to do this? This is my will. What do you think about it? What are your thoughts? Let's take a poll. Let's take a survey. Never once. God is not a peer with us when God prescribes something. It is an expression of his character and nature and holiness. And you and I are made in his image. And the full expectation of everyone born in Adam, the full expectation is that we would conform to the will of God. That's the full expectation. And by the way, whether or not you are uh, religious or irreligious or familiar with the Bible or not familiar with the Bible, this is an awareness that you have continually. The law of God, you can find it in Exodus 20, and you can also find it in your heart. So this is an ever-present reality. There is an ever-present sense of 
guilt. And it will not go away. Now, you can distract yourself. You can turn to all kinds of other things. Uh, momentarily feel like you've been distracted. Uh, you know, you can, you can, Pascal called this diversion. And there are not thousands. I believe there are millions of diversions in our day and age. So Moses writes about this righteousness. To believe in Jesus is not, nothing uh, in contrast to the Old Testament. It's a direct, there's a con direct connection between everything Moses taught and everything Jesus teaches. There is no Old Testament ideas and then there's New Testament ideas, Old Testament salvation, New Testament salvation. There is righteousness based upon the law. It's interesting that now verses 6 and 7, let's just read these. Uh, let me get on. I'm going to start with verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, now I'm interested in the righteousness based on this. What is this righteousness? I'm fascinated, Paul. Tell me about it. But the righteousness based on faith, that's how we're going to access this righteousness. It's going to be by faith. This is a talking faith. It says something. It says something in our hearts. It is believing something, but there's a, pro, there's a, um, a warning. Do you see verse 6? The righteousness based on faith is not a boastful expression of the heart. Look at verse 6. The righteousness based on faith, this is, tells us the, the character of faith, does not say in your hearts, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Christ is a, a representative word here for salvation. Paul is giving us commentary on Deuteronomy 30 here. Who, the righteousness based on faith has a certain way of receiving, a certain way of being. It's not arrogant. It's not works-oriented. It's not saying, well, then I must go and, and, and find this revelation. I must go and work toward this. I must, in a sense, for instance, maybe fastings and ascetic practices or rigorous discipline. I must, I must purge myself of impurities in order to, to present my a more pure body or pure soul to God. I must, I must go and rise up to God and prove that, that I am wor a worthy recipient. Can you hear religion here? It doesn't say, let's go find this salvation. Or perhaps let's explore the, the world of the dead. Strange language, isn't it? up into heaven and then in, into the abyss, the English standard says. Uh, another word would be Sheol, the King James says, the, the world of the dead. Let's explore the world of the dead that maybe we can, by some, some exploration and some diligent behavior on our, our part, we might be able to, to access how to be saved. Faith doesn't talk this way. Not a few evangelical churches 
talk this way. But they tag Jesus on at the end, perhaps the end of the sermon. He's, he's kind of, of course, we're going to talk about Jesus. But the, the, the central message of many, many churches today is of a, a task you need to do, a discipline you need to begin practicing, some principles you need to start pl- applying in order to have a happier life, or even a sense that God is close to you. How many people... And when that woman met with me and she said, I, I guess it's all about processing. And those of you who know the law-gospel distinction go, good luck, because <laughs> you're not going to make it. It's like jumping from here to the moon. You're not going to make it. But do we not think this way about our relationship with God? Boy, I just, I just wish I could get my act together, and I could be closer to God. There's a great hunger for this stuff. Great market for this. Christian publishing loves this stuff. The idea that you need to do certain practices, and if you do these things, now of course the book of James does tell us that if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That is a truth in the Bible. What we're after here is the foundational truth of how do I access a standing with God, a way of being firm in this foundation. A mighty fortress is our God who has provided this justification for me that I might stand before his righteous law justified. Declared righteous through the merit of Christ alone. So it's not a busy, the faith, the righteousness based on faith, verse 6, is a humble expression, not an arrogant expression of activity. Verse 6, Paul's guiding us, he's walking, he's, he's really helping us. It feels a bit complex, but actually just look at it. Watch him guide us. He's actually helping us. But what does it say? I'm curious, Paul, what does Faith say. Faith says, and this is a quote right from Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In your mouth and in your heart. That is, and then he helps us even further, the word of faith that we proclaim. Where can I access this righteousness through faith alone? Do I have to put a backpack on and do a journey, do a pilgrimage, practice asceticism? Do I have to do something in order to bring God near to me? Do I have to become a spiritual explorer, show how diligent I am, show how obedient I am? What is this word of, of that brings God's nearness to me. What is it? And Paul says, it is what we are proclaiming right now. It is as close as food is in your mouth. It is right here in this moment. This is how close God comes when the preaching of the gospel is taking place. This is how close you can come to entering into his very holiness through Jesus. This is how close. 
my conversion, I was 19 years old. Wow, did I feel the closeness of God. <laughs> I woke up that day, I had no interest in the closeness of God. None. I was a California pagan and I loved it. And it was, what was remarkable was that, like, how can this be? It's just church. You know, it's just church. I can do church, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. I can do that. I can do that. I, that's why I went. I just went to, the, to be polite to the people who invited me. It's just church. I can do that. I had no idea that God was going to be this close to me that it actually felt rather uncomfortable. And you know what I started to desire? I, I started to my own little world of confessing to God. I, he looked into, it was on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9, that was the sermon of the day. And it was like the heavens were open and God was looking right into my life. Was, oh, look away, look somewhere else. And as God was looking, and I, it was just church, just church like this, just church. As this was going on, I began to confess with my mouth. I had an existential experience with God's lordship. It was the lordship of Christ through the, through the human words of a preacher that day. It was palpable. I couldn't escape it. I couldn't pretend it wasn't happening. It was real, and God made it real to me. And it was near. What Paul is trying to communicate to the Romans. Do you know what evangelistic opportunities there are for you? Do you know that when God comes and he accompanies his word, and when you are helping people understand Jesus, he is in that process. And it is not hard. You're not asking them to become disciplined ascetics who uh, journey up the spiritual mountain, you're not asking them to do that. Any religion can do that. You are presenting the complete finished work of Christ that by feeble faith that just lifts the hands, oh God, I receive this. That's what you're asking. And most people, I'm interesting, I, I would be interested to survey you. When I have conversations with non-Christians, I always, it always is like, oh, they're... they're <laughs> Their view of, of me is that I am just, this is, it's, uh, religion must be complicated, it's difficult. Oh, good for you, a little pat on the head. Oh, wow. Wow, you're a minister. Oh. And there's this sort of this sense of like, oh, it must be, right? Very hard, difficult, right? It is hard and it is difficult. But the idea of accessing Christ is not. This is an evangelistic message. This is why Luther had fire in his belly. He understood that word above every power. This is powerful stuff. It's just church, isn't it? Just another day in a medieval world, medieval church with all kinds of superstitions. And Luther said, and it's a quote, I think it's on the cover of your worship folder, Basically, all I did was drink Wittenberg beer, and the word did everything else. How about that? Every minister of the gospel should think that way. I mean, it, some of you may exclude the beer, but... 
Every minister of the gospel should be rightly humbled because it is nothing. They have no ability to make this happen. Zip nada. You, the day of my conversion, you didn't have to explain to me about the reality of Christ's presence with me. You didn't have. I needed to have someone assure me that I had actually was expressing faith in God and crying out to be. Please do. My first prayer to God was this. Please do in me what you did in that man. That's all I said. I didn't know what else to say. I didn't even know God, if God would do it. So the righteousness based on faith talks. It speaks. And the first thing it says is we're not going to start a spiritual journey. We're not going to start a practice as if we have to draw God close to us. Now, this was always the principle of the Old Testament. Israel in the Old Testament was enslaved in Egypt, unable to do anything, and God, out of his, they cried out, they cried out, and God, motivated by his mercy, came and rescued them, drew them out into the wilderness, gathered them around Mount Sinai, and said to them, I am, I am going to cut a covenant with you in blood. Happened with the Passover lambs. I'm going to cut a, a covenant with you, and I will bring my merciful presence with you daily, continually. God traveled with them and stayed with them. His presence was right in the midst of their camp. It was a reversal of the curse of Eden where God no longer walked with man. God is now with man in the center of man's life. So faith receives the truth that God is the initiator. God is the one who comes in Christ. Beautiful. It's a commentary again on Deuteronomy 30 and other passages of the Old Testament. Well, well what does this look like? How, is this, again, Paul, you're presenting it as, as really quite simple. And it is. And here is how they instructed people in the early church. Here it is. How do I access this righteousness by faith? What does it look like? Well, you do have a role. You have a role of believing. God doesn't believe for you. But verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you confess you're under the new realm of his lordship, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, do you believe that there's a new realm that Jesus has, has brought about in his body? You see, the age of death and dying is over in Jesus. How do I know? He rose from the dead. Do you believe that there is a new uh, epoch, a new, a new era, a new age that's upon the world through the body of Jesus? You will be united to this Lord King who has brought the age of endless glory to bear upon you now. Do you confess him as Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Verse 10, for with the heart, and now here's the explanation, here's the mechanics. Well, what does all that do, Paul? Verse 10, 
For with the heart one believes and is, oh, the glorious word, starts with a J, and is justified. One is declared having met the righteous requirement of the law through Jesus. If you believe in your heart, you are justified, and with the mouth one confesses. This is evidence of discipleship. There is a time when everyone must, if you are genuinely believing in Jesus, really this is irresistible, by the way. Um, it's not, it's, it, if someone really believes in Jesus, it's not hard to get them to confess that he's Lord. And uh, perhaps the training wheels are here in the church because it's a little bit easier, but confessing Christ among your peers and your coworkers, that may be more difficult, but it is inevitable of the new nature. And so if you confess Christ as Lord and you, and you confess uh, and confess him, uh, the result is you are saved. Essentially this, believing and confessing are essentially the same act. It's the parable of the, of the sower and the seed, the good, abundant fruit that comes out uh, from the, the, the last seed in that parable. So how am I saved? I'm saved because I've been made righteous by a law keeper who was Jesus. And what's the result? Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame is a result of having failed. Shame is a result of not being enough. It's a big issue in our culture today. Will not be put to shame. Shame has the idea of that you are, um, this relates to sort of the, uh, the dietary laws and the, some of the, Levitic, the Levitical laws of the Old Testament that you are coming into the temple as unclean and you must present yourself. Shame has this sense of something is not so much what you have done, it is who you are. And the promise of justification is you will be received through the beautiful robes of Jesus that cover you, as it makes you righteous. You will be received. You will not be put to shame. You will not be held to, some, to the standard of the law and where God again becomes your judge and hovers over you with guilt or shame. Shame is this cry that says, oh, you didn't prove to be enough. Are you justified today by the work of Jesus? Are you enjoying that proclamation that you will not be put to shame? Jesus in the Lord's Supper assures us that he's present with us. Some time ago, I was down at Alamoana, the Cathedral of Consumption. Uh, quite remarkable down there. Um, one time I went by a store down in Alamoana and the men's, men's pants on sale, 50% off. So I went inside. The starting price was $450. So I didn't get any pants that day. But I don't, Alamoana has a unique part of it. There's a turn. It's on the second floor. And uh, it's where all the Gucci things are, Versace bags, you know, those affordable $2,000 little leather purses, you know. And there's that moment, and I, I was down there recently, and I turned the corner, and there's just all kinds, every one of these high fashion companies is there now. They've all arrived. And... 
the images of, uh, of models and beautiful people wearing the watch, the jewelry. And I, I just sort of had this unusual experience of walking past and, and feeling so, I don't know, I felt overweight. I felt ugly. I don't know. This little watch could be improved. And I started feeling like what they were doing was they were trying to impress upon me the beauty of these people. If I could only have them sort of cover me with their, with their clothing, they just, just, just adore me with their watch. Or they could just, if, if I would just let them into my life, I would be, I would be better. I would be beautiful. I walk past the Apple store. It's minimalism going on. And everyone's into the screens. Their eyes are glazed over. And it's as if they're saying the same thing. Become something for me. Become faster. Oh, there's more pixelation. And it's this, it's this dreamy kind of thing. Oh, what a thing. Who would want to be stuck with Windows 95? I want your beauty to define me. Breathe life into me. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, reformers 500 years ago and some who were before the official Reformation, I think of John Huss, the bohemian pastor of what we call the Czech Republic. All he wanted initially was that his church could hear the word of God read. They promised him a trial. He was preparing for the trial. They put him in chains. They put a dunce hat on his head that said he was the son of Satan. They burned him. They threw his ashes in the river. All he wanted initially was that his church, it's called Bethlehem Chapel, all he wanted was that his church could read the Bible. The medieval church would have, up the front, would have a, a, chain, a chain fence and not every church, but some churches had a Bible back there, but the message was, you have no access to it. That God might be brought near is the message of justification. Close to you, like food in your mouth. The Reformation, some 50 years later, uh, was, was, well, was spreading all around and one of the unique stories from the Reformation is that it, it traveled into Spain. And uh, there were other publications, books being made, and, uh, not just Luther. And there was a, a, about 12 monks near a, the city of Seville in a monastery. And monks, you know, they're preparing. They study the Hebrew and Greek, and they, they're very diligent and, and, and very you know, disciplined. And there was this 
beautiful moment when they began to discover the Reformation, these 12 monks. And uh, at the same time, though, during the 1500s, the Spanish Inquisition was underway. Under the pretense of witchcraft, under the pretense of other things, many people lost their life, particularly in Spain. And the officers of the Inquisition were after this thing that was spoken of as Lutheranism. And these uh, 12 monks had a friend on the outside who would smuggle in his little wheelbarrow. He would smuggle in oil and, uh, well, he was delivering oil and wine and other supplies, and he would bring in books from the Reformation. The officers of the Inquisition found him, and he was burned. Now, those in the monastery knew that their time was running out. Soon, the Inquisition would show up at their door. And so these 12 monks fled, and they made a plan. And the plan was they would meet up again one year later in Geneva, Switzerland. These Spanish monks in Switzerland. And so they did. And one became pastor of a Spanish-speaking congregation in Geneva, Switzerland. And the other, his name was Casadora de Reina. And he began, began a lifelong pursuit of translating the Bible into Spanish. And in 1569, it was published. And to this day, it is considered one of the greatest works in Spanish literature. It's called the Arena Valera Bible, 1569. Why did that monk want people to have the Bible in their own language? because he wanted the nearness of God's presence through justification to be known by people. Uh, they would have that, you know, that wood block, uh, you know, they'd stamp the, the cover of these, these old ancient medieval books. They would stamp the cover, some of you have seen these, and there would be the title of this Bible it would have this impression on it, and there was an image, an image on the cover of this Bible, and it was the image of a tree with a honeycomb and a little bear cub. And the bear cub's reaching up, and he's, the, the, honey's, the honey's pouring on him. It's the cover of a Bible. Because the nearness of God is the sweetness proclaimed in the gospel. Jesus now as you eat a kind of honey, the sweetness of his finished work of, on the cross for you, that you might know the nearness of God. He's close to you, like food in your mouth. Let's pray. Lord, the arms of faith lift up. Bring us the sweetness of this nearness through Jesus, the righteous one through the law, the righteous one through the law. He gives us that righteousness by faith alone. Oh, Lord, how beautiful you make us. We receive your beauty by faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.